That is a great thing. And that's two great people. Thank you guys so much. (laughs) And there they go. That's it for them. The only thing uh, bigger than Darren's smile, (laughs) that is pretty big, are those two hearts right there. That's some awesome stuff. Okay, so thanks for being here. If you're joining us online, thank you for hanging out with us. Maybe you're even watching in the future uh, during a recording. However you're engaging, uh, we're glad you're here and you're part of the family. Uh, I wanted to say, I see Sharon over here. Sharon, so good to see you. This is Sharon Kozar. It sounds like you, it sounds like you might know her. Uh, for those of you that don't know Sharon, she's uh, one of my heroes. Uh, she's been serving in the ministry in the mission field in Papua New Guinea for six, seven years, seven years. And a uh, significant break is long overdue. And um, we're so thankful for you, so grateful for you. Um, she knows. I call her Mercy Works. That's what she does. She's mercy all over the place. Um, and that's what she's been doing, pouring out and pouring out and pouring out. And um, uh, we need to do some pouring in. We're thankful that you're back, thankful for what you do. Thankful for many of you who have com- contributed and supported <laughs> a, a re-entry like none other. I think I'm so grateful for the way you've cared for her even already. So keep it up. Um, love you and thank you. Um, we are uh, rolling into a study in an, another book. We did uh, the rooted study uh, in our small group settings, and we taught from it on Sunday mornings. We do the same thing again. Uh, we've already, well, I guess it's just starting, and it's called Bless. Bless is a book that was written by some people that we call friends. Uh, we know them, John and Dave Ferguson. They pastor a, a Big, big church outside of Chicago. It's a multi-site church in many, many locations, dozens, I think. Uh, They also lead uh, a ministry called Exponential, which is really a national, even global space, uh, a cohort, if you will, of thousands and thousands and thousands of pastors that are uh, part of what is really kingdom uh, development through church planting. Uh, They've been leading that thing for years and years. They're wonderful folks. Um, And we're going to do this. We're going to work on this book together. Uh, because it contributes something to your life as a Christian that we think is um, uh, something you can't do without. And so those are big words, but we mean it. We've been actually uh, practicing some of these disciplines for close to six years now. It's been one of the best things we've ever done as a church is to put this particular tool in the hands of you, the church. And so we just wanted to give you a deeper understanding of, of, of the whole thing because we barely get past the B of praying, beginning with prayer. So jump in, uh, even if it's just now, we're getting started. Most folks that are leading into this first week have already read the introduction in chapter one. So spend an hour, catch up, read chapter two, get into a group if you can, or some kind of a conversation with somebody, ask someone to read it with you so you can process it. Chapter one really talks about what is very naturally fears and challenges and apprehensions that come along with sharing the gospel, uh, sharing your faith with someone else. But they press down this, this, uh, this pathway, really, of sort of a relational patient approach. And the whole thing is built, in one sense, on the, on the platform of some realities that might be encouraging to you. Um, close to 80% of people still in our, in our country, in our world, that is clearly post-church, post-Christian. I don't know if you've accepted that reality yet, but we are not the country we used to be. We're definitely post 
church post, post-Christian. Less than 50% of the people in the congregation don't, don't go to church. More than 50% don't. Um, but 80% of people in our country are God-thoughtful. Like they have some sort of orientation to God. They might not be a Christian, but they are not that, they're not hostile to the idea of God. Um, one out of every four non-Christians, non-church people, are actually willing to hear about and are curious about what Christianity is. And this is always surprising. About eight out of ten people, at least those that they've surveyed, um, aren't opposed to having a conversation about a friend's faith. This is the reality, and we tend to make the whole thing a little too difficult. And oftentimes we get actually started down the wrong path, and that's what we want to talk about today. What are we supposed to do as Christians? Centrally, at, at, our, at our core, what is, it, what is expected of us? Well, there's a ton of answers to, the, to that question. Like if, I were to just, if we were to just spend some time talking about what should you do as a Christian, we come up with a laundry list of things, all of which are probably really good. Like be a good person, live a good life, feed the hungry, be generous, raise morally conscious children, clothe the poor, care for orphans and, and, and widows, right? You can go, we can go on and on and on. This is hard to argue with. Why would you argue with them? A lot of those things are in the Bible. We are instructed to do those things. But what is the core thing that we're supposed to do? There is actually one. The Christian burden, if you will. Listen to, listen to what Paul says before I try to lay it out as simply as I can. Paul says to the church in Corinth, For what I received, I passed on to you. He goes on to say, As Christians, we are Christ's ambassadors. We stand in between. Jesus himself, when he showed up, said, I have good news. He, he stood, literally stood up and said, I have good news to share. I want to tell you what I know, who I am. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. You've probably heard this. This is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them. If you've ever discovered anything that met a need in your life. Like, think about that. If you have been on the receiving end of something that was very meaningful, from the, from the simple to the profound, right? A, a comfortable pair of shoes. To, to an answer to a, to a question or relief from a pain that you've had forever and ever. What, whatever it is. A, a gadget that makes your life simpler. Uh, someone that is a good friend, a great book, an inspiring quote. What do you do with it? You share it. It's, it's just the very natural thing to do, to share what has been given to you. I, I don't know if you've experienced this before. I've experienced it numerous times, particularly in third world countries. You give a child, a young child, a gift. It could be a toy. It could be a sandwich. It could be a pack of M&Ms. It doesn't matter. They will not enjoy it until they have found their friends so they can share it. It's mind-blowing. They have nothing. You would expect them to gather it up 
hide it, run off in a corner somewhere and eat it all themselves or use it themselves. And invariably, you see this natural impulse to share it with other people. The Christian, by definition, has met Jesus and received the solution to their deepest human need. They've been forgiven and restored in Christ. The single most important response that we can have to that is to share. Billy Graham, one of the most influential Christian leaders of the 20th century, spent his life passing along four statements. I mean, Billy Graham did a lot of things, a lot of things. But he never stopped sharing these four things. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you have a sin problem that separates you from God. The good news is that Jesus came to die for your sins. And four, if you accept Jesus' death, you can be reconnected to God. <laughs> and he spent his whole life from beginning to end. I mean, he was talking about this stuff when he was about ready to die. All through Christian history, whether it's Jesus or Paul or Billy, we are compelled to share what has been given to us. It is our turn. Well, what's that like? What is the nature of that sharing? How do you do it? Where, you know, what's that, what's that made up of? We have some, lots of things that press us in a particular direction from Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says to his young protege, Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. From Scripture, we learn what's true, what's wrong. We learn how to correct wrong. We learn how to apply truth. We read these sorts of things and we, we try to answer this compulsion to share what we have been what we have received, we, we listen to Billy Graham, we listen to Jesus, we listen to Scripture, and the Western mind automatically, almost automatically, makes this into a primarily intellectual activity. We, we understand it as a process of understanding what it is we've received, understanding the insights of Scripture, explanations that are in Scripture, the difficult things that we learn, theological subjects, if you will. And it would seem, and this is part of what makes us really anxious when it comes to evangelism, is this very structure that you're going to have to be smart to share it. Because you've got to know a lot of stuff. You've got to figure out a lot of things. And you know you're going to get questions that are really hard. And if you can't answer them, it's just going to be embarrassing. So if you're not very smart, you're probably not going to be all that compelled to share. Add to that that the centrality of the Bible in the Christian faith. And you think not only do I be smart, I got to be smart about the Bible, really smart. But here's the thing. If we conclude that what Jesus, Jesus has called us to, what we must be proficient in 
is simply academic, we will have missed the critical nature of what we're called to do. And that's a scary thing. If you're trying to hit a target, if there is a target, and you're trying to hit that target, and you don't know what that target is, it's not rocket science to know it's going to be difficult to hit that target. Right? You don't have to be a theologian or a psychiatrist that if you don't know what you're aiming at, it's going to be really hard to hit it. And I think sometimes this is the anxiety we live under as Christians. We don't know really what the target is. We think we do. When I was, uh, let me give you an example of this. When I was a young lieutenant in the Air Force, three years in, I was a first lieutenant. That's a silver bar. I got rid of the butter bar. That's what they call the one. You're in second lieutenant first. You just go gold bar. Then you get a silver one when you've been in about two years if you haven't severely hurt anybody, done anything massively wrong. <clears throat> and at that point, I was um, given the role as a squadron commander. Squadron commander. <laughs> I got three years of Air Force experience. And now I'm overseeing 180 enlisted personnel. We were in a flying squadron. So it was mostly mechanics and crew chiefs and things like that. Utterly critical to the mission. <laughs> Fortunately, there was someone who was actually in charge of those 180, and that was what we called the first shirt. He had so many stripes and had been in the Air Force so long, you could barely fit them on one sleeve. The first shirt. And he and I worked together to lead this squadron of 180 enlisted folks. Every Monday morning, we had about a half a dozen young airmen who had gotten themselves in trouble over the weekend. Never failed. A lot of it, they could have remedied on their own, but they made it worse, usually. Like, one guy got a speeding ticket a couple weeks back, and this last weekend he was supposed to go to a court case, court, court, and he didn't go. This didn't show up, so I had a warrant out for his arrest. There were five military bases in the town I was in at the time. This was San Antonio. And... Uh, we worked really closely with the civilian law enforcement because mostly our people were the ones getting in trouble. <clears throat> a lot of them. So the shirt says, hey, why don't you take the first one? This is the first time I had to you know, discipline somebody and walk them through. So I did. Uh, he comes in, goes through all the formalities, salutes, stands at attention. I put him at ease. I ask him to sit down. And we have what I consider to be a wonderful conversation. Father, son, I'm challenging him. I'm showing him things that are important for him to understand. I'm asking him to think about his future, uh, think about the consequences of failure. And he is totally into it. Totally. We are, we are connecting. We're jiving. And I'm, I'm excited. He gets to the end. He says, I, I thank you. This has been wonderful. You've been great. You're a great, you're a great you know, squadron commander. Well, I appreciate that. Have a great day. Boom. I can't even wait to turn around and see the first shirt because I'm going to be like, you know what? Even though I've only got three years of experience, I can probably do this. And I turn around and he's smiling, which was the good part. And he was doing this. No. He goes, granted, that was very diplomatic. And 
I think he really liked you. He appreciated you. I'm going to do the second one, and then we'll talk. In comes the second guy. Comes to attention, salutes. Is that attention? Shirt never takes him out of attention. And for 15 minutes, just rips him up one side and down the other. He is sweating. He, 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 he doesn't get to say it. If he tries to speak, he just, no. He's storming around the office. Papers are flying everywhere. Now get out of my office. And I'm pretty sure he kicked him on the way out the office, slammed the door. And before the shirt turned around, I thought, he's going to need like 20 minutes to calm down before we can have a conversation. And he turns around. He was totally fine. It was, he wasn't worked up at all. At all. He goes, that guy will do anything to not come back in this office ever again. Your guy is telling people right now how great it is to be in this office. He really liked you. But that's not the point. He said, look... The goal here is not for me to be recognized as having done a good job by that person or to be liked or to be spoken well of these men. He said to me, the goal is that the next time these young men are faced with a decision to do right or wrong, they choose to do what's right. Maybe for the only reason that they don't want to ever come back in here again. It's not to make that you look good or to be liked. When it comes to reaching others for Jesus' sake, We have got to get the objective right or we're going to be a mess. So many of us go into situations with an opportunity to share our faith and we're concerned about what? How I'm going to do. Whether God's going to smile on me. Whether I'm going to answer all the questions. Whether I'm going to be seen as a good Christian, an experienced Christian, a smart Christian. We have all the right, the wrong objectives. And oftentimes we have the objectives that we have because we're actually good at hitting that objective. Some people are really smart, really Bible smart, and they can actually hit that objective. But what if it's the wrong objective? If it's the wrong objective, it's the wrong objective. And oftentimes when it's the wrong objective, we're either really anxious about it or we're prideful about it. We've got to get this exactly right. Jesus didn't actually admonish his disciples when he said, go, to teach. That's where we oftentimes stop that scripture that I read. Go and make disciples, teaching them what? To obey. There's a much bigger goal than just teaching someone. We're not just transferring information or knowledge. We're not just teaching. We're not just being good teachers. It's whether or not what we've taught and how we've taught and how we've lived, where that person is obeying who? Me? What I say? What the pastor says? No, what Jesus says. Teach them to obey me, Jesus said. Me. For some reason, we don't have as much confidence in Jesus as we do in ourselves and others to teach people. We don't actually believe the Holy Spirit is alive and well and can counsel and comfort people. We think it's all about us, and that's the wrong direction. When Paul says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, again, the Western mind thinks right away that this is that we need to discover and become a fount of knowledge. Our mind, we need to be intellectually good. When in fact, what Paul means by the transforming of our mind 
is to discover and to be enlightened about who God truly is, about who I truly am, and about what life is all truly about, according to Jesus. It's to have your mind transformed from darkness to light, to no longer be blind to the nature of God, holy, the nature of man, sinful, and the gap and the solution for all of that. When Paul said to pass it on, or what he said, I am passing on to you, what he passed on to them was not information per se, technically. It was about the fact that Jesus had been buried and died and rose again to new life. When he said we are ambassadors, it was a deployment of believers to point to Jesus. This is the way Peter put it. He says uh, in First Peter, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Don't just give answers, right? We didn't read the whole verse. Give answers that answer about the reason that you have hope. The Hebrew writer says, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Augustine reminds us in alignment with Matthew 25, compel people to come in. Andrew, one of the first disciples, tells Nathaniel, his brother, come and see the one from Nazareth. The woman at the well says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. The Christian burden is to be uh, glimpses of God that point to God. To receive, to become, and to let others see what you've become. Here's how, this is how God put it to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. This is the father of our faith. The Lord said, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. This is a horrible thing for Abraham to hear. The only thing that gives you value in this particular era is land and children. That's the only thing that made you even appear to be blessed in any way by God. If you had land and children. The only land he had was his father's land. And God's saying, okay, leave that land behind so you have no land. And already Abraham and Sarah had no children and they couldn't have children. They were too old to have any children. So God says, hey, I want you to leave the land behind. That was all he had. You have no children. Now you have no land. This is what I want you to do. And he says, I will make you into a great nation. Well, that's impossible. Great nations are made by multiple children and generations and land. I'm going to make you, I am going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. All the people on earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham is beyond any capacity to construct this blessing on his own. No capacity for that. God says, I am going to do something impossible with you. I will bless others through you. Basically, you will have nothing to do with this. Because what is God's ultimate purpose? He, is get, he wants to get people to look at him, to find him, 
He's not interested in people being impressed by his people. Right? He's not looking for that. When people look at God's people, they should see someone that it makes no sense that they are who they are. And the only answer is God. The Christian burden, be the impossible blessing of God so that others might search for him. Be something as a result of God that causes other people to look beyond you to the origin of that impossible blessing. That is our job. To be a blessing with all that God has given us so that they look at God. Jesus what Jesus did. It wasn't rocket science. He was simply blessing others. And look what happens. He lets God do what God does in his life, basically. That's how he shares his compassion. Look, so Jesus is walking down the road to Jericho. A blind man sitting by the road. He's begging because there's a big crowd coming. This is a perfect place for a blind guy to be. And he says, what's going on? It's a pretty big crowd. And they said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And everybody knows Jesus is doing some pretty amazing things. And this blind guy's like, oh man, I'm in the right place at the right time. And he starts shouting for Jesus to have mercy on him. He's like, Jesus, will, will you have compassion on me? Essentially, I've heard what you've said. And people are like embarrassed. They're like, dude, you have to shush, be quiet. You're embarrassing yourself and other people. And he just started yelling even louder. And Jesus stopped, comes over to the man. No, he has the guy come over to him. He said, bring him over here. And Jesus says, I'm going to make it really clear. What do you want? What do you want? The blind man has to express a need that he has that is beyond his, beyond his ability to do anything about. And the same question is for you. You're not going to show the blessing of God if you don't know the answer to the question that only God can fix. Right? So if you're saying to God, what do you know? He says, if you say, I need like $100. <laughs> it's like, okay. That's as good. That's as good. You can get $100 on your own. You can get 1000 You can probably get 10 You Some of us can get 100000 You can do that on your own. You don't need God. For what do you want? I'm blind. Birth. I'd like to see. Oh, this is something. So Jesus says, receive your sight. <laughs> Boom. And immediately he receives his sight and listen to what he does. This is what happens when God moves through something. Move through Jesus. God, this guy, follows Jesus. That's what happened. He follows him. Jesus hasn't explained anything to this guy. He's done and been a conduit for what only God can do. It's like, okay, I'm following him. Praising God. Went right through Jesus to God, praising God. And look what all the other people saw, what happened in that guy's life. Something that could not have possibly come about by his own work. They start praising God. This is the way it works. We see the compassion of Jesus here, his desire to bless. Meet a need. We see how the blessing leads to another person following Jesus and praising God. And we see how the blessing continues to pass on. This is what we're called to do. Paul captures this way to the church in Philippi. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who, although he was God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He's not trying to be God. He's not trying, he's not trying, he's not trying to be that. It's like Rather, he makes himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant. And being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The work of Christianity isn't to be awesome. 
It's to be unfixable and fixed by God. It's to be a wreck without him. It's not to be smart or even good. To be an enviable Christian is not the goal. To feel good about how non-Christians appreciate or respect you is not the goal. It's helpful. All this is helpful, but it's not the goal. It is to be certain, so certain of God's love, his provision, his control, his plan, that we lay down our lives. What, like a soldier? Like physically die? Maybe, not usually, not for us. Laying down our lives is like laying down our own aspirations, our own agendas, our own anxieties about the future, our own infatuation with not dying. It's about how wonderfully good the good news of Jesus is in you and how that good news works itself out in unexplainable ways. The objective in the process of Blessing, as God calls us, is to first be blessed in ways that are unexplainable and then be a blessing in unexplainable ways. To be unashamed in the light of your failures, your deepest failures, to still be unashamed. To be fearless because you know you are eternal, eternally secure. To be transparent Because you know you are loved and forgiven. To be compassionate. Even to those who can give you nothing back ever. Because you don't need anything. It's to forgive those who absolutely, unequivocally do not deserve it. You want to catch the attention of a non-believer? Forgive somebody who absolutely doesn't deserve it. Why? Because you know that's what God has done for you. That is the deepest blessing of your life is you've been given something you don't deserve. Let that blessing flow out to be generous beyond what's reasonable. Way beyond what's reasonable. People should be like, you're giving how, what? Because you know you have everything you ever need. Now here's the thing. You got to be honest about this. What I'm describing here as the objective is harder than an academic approach. Isn't it? Isn't it easier just to know a lot of answers and give the answers? Isn't that a lot easier than actually being vulnerable, actually laying down your life? I I think loads harder. This, hitting this target, requires something much deeper. It requires us to be something other than a Christian by birth or by name. It requires that we always and continuously be aware of our need for Jesus every day. It is to to have a clear and inexplicable transformation going on in us and through us all the time. To be authentic beyond what is comfortable. And it is to reflect a continual faith that God is good all the time. When you have the least means to be generous, you're generous. When you have 
next to nothing to be thankful for, you're grateful. These are things that come from somewhere other than us. And when we do that, people go, what? Who? Jesus, huh? They're like, this ain't you. I know you. Right? You, you tell me about you. You tell me about you. And this is you. Why? And the answer, when it is truly the answer, right? When it is truly the answer, it's God. The Spirit moves. Sometimes it's just not the right. It's not God. We're trying to give God credit for stuff we've done, right? And I know in, in the big scope of things, like, hey, it's God. It's always God. But God wants to do something deep within us that is incomprehensible. This is what Jesus said. I'll wrap this up. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Rivers of true life will flow out. Something other than what we find in this world comes up and out of one who truly believes Here's what um, Martin Luther, uh, the founder of the Reformation, uh, really the Protestant faith, it says, um, this is hundreds and hundreds of years ago. We are all mere beggars, showing other beggars where to find bread. I, I read an author recently that, said, that goes on with that and says, and this beggar is still sometimes hungry, but he knows where the bread is. <laughs> This is good. Let others see the deepest blessings of God in you. And where they are, and when they are, and, and when they see it, they will be blessed by God. And when they're blessed by God, they will seek Him. And the scriptures promised us that those who seek Jesus find Him. We don't need to get in the middle of that. We just need to be who Jesus made us to be. Talk about what he's done within us that is beyond our power. When they ask why or how, we get out of the way. Meet Jesus. And you will have done your job. There's some really good mechanics laid out in this book that help us do this. Because even if you want to do it, you're like, okay, but how? So read the book with us. I think you're going to really, really enjoy it. Remember this. You can't outgive God. You cannot outgive God. And your faith in the way you give and the way you bless is part of God's channel for blessing others. God, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what you need from us is to be before we do. To understand the deepest parts of us at the core of who we are and in, in our bones. To be painfully aware of our need for you and the blessings that you have given us. The blessing that you are. 
Help us, God, to be the kind of people, the kind of church that live in a way that cause people to ask questions to which we have only one answer. Overwhelmingly, God. And let, we will let you take it from there. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, if you were with us online, thank you so much for being here. Uh, We'll see you again next week. Goodbye. And for the rest of you.